Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn to the book of Zephaniah. The book of Zephaniah. You have, uh, you've made it through eight weeks of studying the minor prophets, and uh, you've, uh, you've hung in there well, and I appreciate your attention and, and uh, just appreciate what God has been doing in my own life and in your lives as well as we've kind of have uh, really stayed to the course and gone week by week through an entire minor prophet. I understand that uh, this, this portion of scripture can oftentimes, it actually is probably some of the most confusing things to talk about and uh, to read about, to understand, and, uh, and uh, we'll continue on just after today, just three more left. And uh, to see God's plan and to see a common theme. I was actually, I was talking with uh, Brandon Howard uh, yesterday during um, Calvary Kid Venture. We were, we were hauling some stuff for the carnival and he asked what I was preaching on. I said Zephaniah. And I think by this book, I've kind of, I've kind of realized pretty much any of these minor prophets, if you want to know a way to outline each book, it's basically look within, look around, look beyond. Because every single, all, all, with, with a few exceptions, almost every minor prophet does that. They start with look within, that is look at Judah or look at Israel, look what's going on inside the nation. And then the prophet says, go look around and look what God's going to do with the other nations. And then he says, look beyond and there's hope. And that's, and so basically what I've done is I've just tried to mix it up a little bit each step along the way and try to draw out different themes and stuff like that. But that's basically the idea. And basically the outline for today's message. Look within, look around, look beyond. And uh, I think the book of Joel, we did something similar to that as well. So you're starting to learn how not creative I am. Uh, but, um, but that's what we got to deal with. Zephaniah chapter 1, just going to read the first few verses. Again, not going to take time to read big portions of this for sake of time, but uh, be reading ahead. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests with the priests. Those who bow down on roofs to the hosts of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice I will punish the officials of the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. We'll stop reading there. The title of my message this morning is The Great Escape. And for some of you, immediately when I say The Great Escape, you think of Steve McQueen, 
right? Who thinks Steve McQueen, 1963, in the great movie, The Great Escape. I, I, I've seen the movie when I was in high school, but it's been a while. Three hours long. Well, that's, that's uh, I'm not going to go back to 1963. I'm actually going to go back a little bit further to talk about another great escape. And it was a great escape that John Bunyan, uh, the Puritan, wrote in his allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, back in 1678. Here's what John Bunyan wrote. He says, In my dream, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face turned from his house. He had a book in his hand, we know the Bible, and a great burden on his back, sin. Oh, my dear wife and children, he said, I am in myself undone by a burden that lies heavy upon me. Moreover, I have been informed informed that this our city will be burned with fire from heaven and in this fearful destruction both myself with you my wife and you my sweet children shall miserably come to ruin unless we can find some way of escape or deliverance which presently I cannot see John Bunyan goes on to write about this man he saw in his dream he says he looked this way and that way as if he would run Yet he stood still because he couldn't tell which way to go. And this town that this man lives in was what John Bunyan would describe as the city of destruction. And just like that city of destruction that this man he saw in his dream was longing to escape, so also you and I must escape because we are all born into the city of destruction. That's the world. And this world is destined for destruction. And God wants us to escape. Now the prophet Zephaniah returns to a theme that we studied before back in the book of Joel. And that is the day of the Lord. And if you weren't here with us then, that's fine. But back then, Joel talks about a very similar theme. The day of the Lord. But the scene has changed since we were in the book of Joel. The book of Joel, remember, we are, we're in a time of Israel's history where there are two kingdoms. There's a civil war between the two. There's the northern kingdom and there's the southern kingdom. Now, Joel prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel. But here in Zephaniah, he's prophesying to, this, prophesying to the southern kingdom of Israel. Because at the time of Zephaniah, the northern kingdom, they're gone. Remember, we talked about in Joel the coming Assyrians. And if you don't remember that, that's fine. But the, the northern tribe of Israel, the northern kingdom, they've been wiped out by the Assyrians and taken into exile, so they're gone, they're, they're done. And so Zephaniah is, is turning to the southern kingdom, but the Assyrians aren't the world power anymore. It's the Babylonians. And if you recall last week, remember in Habakkuk, we were talking about Habakkuk saying, hey, there's all this sin going on in Israel. God, aren't you going to do something? And then God says, yeah, I am going to do something. I'm bringing in the Babylonians. Because they're now the world power at this time. And so the Babylonians are kind of gearing up to come in to the southern kingdom of Judah and take them out. And that's kind of the context of what we have. Now the southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer than the northern kingdom because they had seasons of fidelity to God. But eventually and ultimately they would fall the same way the northern kingdom did because of their idolatry. Reminded me of a verse, First uh, Timothy chapter five, verse twenty-four, where Paul writes to Timothy and he says, "He says the sins of some are obvious, and they lead to destruction. 
Remember what he says after that? The sins of others are a little bit, they take a little bit longer. They, he says the sins of others appear later. And that's kind of the principle we're working with here. The, the northern tribe, they were pretty much gone from the get-go. No godliness, no godly kings. Um, and so their sins pretty much showed up right away. But their southern tribe, their king, their sins appeared a little bit later. And if you're in here this morning, whether, maybe you're one of those where your sin is just before you and everybody knows your sin. Everybody knows that you're a sinner. Everybody knows the mistakes you make and it's just, just so obvious. Others of you, maybe your sins are going to appear a little bit later. We throw in that principle, don't we, from the book of Numbers, be sure your sins will find you out. Because as we learned last week, that God is not indifferent to sin. Now, it's interesting here that Zephaniah traces his, his genealogy, his ancestry, back to Hezekiah. We have the word Hezekiah in there, son of Hezekiah. This most likely was the great godly king of the southern kingdom, the godly king Hezekiah. And notice here he's ministering in the days of Josiah. Josiah was the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah, which means uh, Zephaniah might have been the great-great-grandson as well, somehow family relation there. But Zephaniah most likely would have been a spiritual influence to Josiah. Now Josiah, if you don't know the history, Hezekiah, godly king, next king Manasseh, next king Ammon, both terribly wicked kings. Terribly wicked. Josiah becomes king when he was eight years old. Any eight-year-olds in here? Who's eight? All right, there we go. Eliana becomes king of Calvary Baptist Church. Queen, queen, sorry. Right, eight years old. And so he comes, he's eight years old when he becomes king, but the, the Bible, God really doesn't tell us anything about his life until the 18th year of his reign. So he would have been 26. 18 plus 8 is 26. So he would have been a 26-year-old uh, Josiah. And that's when all this wickedness is going on. And a priest hands Josiah a copy of the Torah. Or we know the five books of Moses. Basically Genesis, Levit- uh, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Josiah, as, as a 26-year-old been a king since he was eight years old. He starts reading this Torah, and he starts realizing that the kingdom is far from God, and that there is just sin and idolatry and wickedness everywhere. So he just goes into total demo day mode on the southern kingdom, and he just starts clearing house. He does a massive reform. He gets rid of the idols. He tears down the high places where people would worship idols. He stopped the child sacrifice. Yes, they were, they were throwing their own babies into the fire of Molech. And he, got, he killed all the pagan priests and all those who were defiling God. And, and this is in 2 Kings, if you're looking for reference, it's 2 Kings 22 and 23. We read about this. And the last thing he did was that he reinstituted the Passover festival, which in 2 Kings 23-22 says hadn't taken place since the time of the judges, 800 years. So Israel had gone 800 years without observing Passover. And he does all this reform. You know what God's reply was to Josiah at the end of his life? Here's what it says in 2 Kings chapter 23. He says, still... The Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. 
And the Lord said, I will remove Judah out of my sight also. As I have removed Israel, I will, I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. That was God's reply. Now what's going on here? Why would God reply like that? This godly King Josiah comes in and, and completely reforms everything. And yet, God's response is, well, guess what? I'm not going to turn from my burning anger. And why was that? Well, it's because Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and pleased the Lord. But the people's hearts were not changed. You could do all the outward demo days you want and all the outward reforms you want, but if the heart is not changed, your relationship with God doesn't change. If your heart doesn't change, your relationship with God doesn't change. And so the day of the Lord remained upon them. Remember, the day of the Lord is when God directly intervenes into human history to bring on upon uh, his, whatever, whatever people it is, to bring his judgment on sinners. And Zephaniah not only looks to the day of the Lord of Jerusalem, but also the ultimate day of the Lord, which is still in our future, a day still to come. And the day of the Lord will either be to you a day of judgment or a day of deliverance. And we all want to escape that judgment. But in order to escape the wrath of God, the people needed to understand three comparisons. And here's the first comparison. In order to escape the wrath of God, the people needed to understand three comparisons. Number one, God's character compared to what's within. There's the word within. And this is chapter one, verse one, through the, the three verses into chapter three. Now, it's interesting, God starts with the world here. And he doesn't just start with the world as far as people goes. He starts with the whole creation. And he says, I'm going to utterly sweep away everything. Man, beast, birds, heaven, fish of the sea. You get Genesis 1 language here, don't you? And he says in verse 3 why, why he's doing this. I'm going to sweep all this away with the rubble of the wicked. There has always ever been one reason for God's wrath. And that's wickedness. And that's sin. And wickedness literally ruins the world. We use that word literally a lot, way more than we should, but wickedness literally ruins the world. As a matter of fact, back in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, their sin was so grievous and so deep and so destructive that the, the sin of Adam and Eve caused the decay of trees. The sin in the garden caused the sting of bees and wasps. The destruction of wildfires, the languish of droughts, the havoc of tornadoes, and on and on and on it goes. That was all ushered in because one man and one woman sinned. And everything they touched, everything they were around was tainted with that same sort of sin. And God plunged the entire creation into groaning. We learn that from Romans chapter 8. That the creation itself has been groaning in the pains of childbirth, longing for the freedom of the children of the Son of God. And that's what the day of the Lord is going to be like in verses 2 and 3. It's going to be swept away with the wicked. Always only been one reason for the wrath of God, that's wickedness. And wickedness ruins the world. Wickedness will ruin your life. It'll ruin your family. It'll ruin your church. It'll ruin your job. It's a ruinous thing. And that's what we have to do. If our sin, think about this, if our sin, and you say, well, that was Adam and Eve's sin. Romans tells us that 
it doesn't matter that Adam and Eve were there. The idea is if you and I were there, we would have sinned the same way. And their sin nature has been passed down to every single generation since Adam and Eve. The sin nature is passed on. And so you and I are sinners just as much as them. And we have to think, if our sin has caused so much ruin, and our sin will cause us to enter into so much ruin, we've got to stop and think about the holiness of God, God's character compared to within. Man, if my sin caused all of that, it completely destroyed the world, at least the sin that I have within me back in the garden, man, you've got to think about the holiness of God compared to the sin that's within us. God moves into talking specifically about Judah. He talks about the world, then gets narrowed down to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he talks about the sins that God opposed. He lists a number of sins. One was idolatry. Notice here he talks about in verse 4, he talks about Baal. Baal worship. Baal was the god of productivity. So the religion depended on this false god of Baal to provide fertile humans, fertile plants, fertile animals, fertile everything. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, says Baal worship also included a sexual free-for-all. And maybe you say, man, that sounds pretty good. A life of prosperity, a life of fertile land, fertile animals, money, fertile bank accounts, humanity, sex with no boundaries. Like, man, I'm in. But we must be remind, reminded of Proverbs 14, verse 12, where it says, there is, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Have you ever read that? Baal worshippers found their security and wealth, a healthy economy, and prosperity. And wherever security is found in wealth, a healthy economy, or prosperity, Baal worship remains. Do you have any altars up? And beyond Baal worship, notice here it says there are people who bowed bowed down to the host of the heavens. They're bowing down to the sun, moon, and stars and all the heavenly bodies because they believe that somehow the heavenly bodies kind of controlled what happened in life. And this would have been the modern equivalent of astrology and horoscopes and stuff like that. So this is very popular today. It's everywhere. People who believe that you know, based on the alignment of stars or the season you were born in or the season it's in or some day on the calendar, that ultimately determines what's going to happen that day or what season or who you're going to marry or whether or not you are compatible for each other. I saw an article just the other day uh, about, um, I think it was some royal couple, they got split up. And they're like, well, of course they got split up. They didn't, didn't they read their horoscope? Of course they didn't make it. You know, and it was, just, it was just this whole article on how, man, if they would have just realized, you know, what was going on in the heavenlies, they would have understood that they were not meant for each other. As a matter of fact, just the other day, I was out walking around the neighborhood. Uh, this would have been, uh, this would have been on, on thir- Wednesday, Thursday, maybe. And I was out walking around, and I, I uh, in the neighborhood, uh, just over here, I think I'm pointing in the right direction, and uh, I saw some moms out. Uh, talking, and they had some kids riding their bikes and stuff, and so I thought, well, I'll go over and talk to them and maybe invite them to Calvary Kid Venture, which is coming up. And so I went over there and, and uh, introduced myself and said, hey, didn't, don't want to be creepy or just to be sound weird, but I'm the pastor over here at Calvary Baptist Church and new in town, and saw you had some kids, and just want to let you know that we have Calvary Kid Venture, gave them the times, I didn't have any brochures or anything with me. And uh, I explained this to them, and, and, uh, and one of the moms 
looked at me, and she, she was on her phone. She put down her phone, basically the only time she put down her phone. But she looked at me, and she said, there's no way I'm going out on Friday the 13th. And she was dead serious. You think stuff like this is still around? It is. And by the way, I'm happy to report there were no injuries or nothing crazy happened on Friday the 13th. Although Andrew got sunburned pretty bad, but that was Saturday the 14th. Man, check the calendar, dude. Check the calendar. Uh, and so this is still around. And as I, I, I texted my mentor, Pat Nemers, um, it, you know, th- this illustration. And he sent me a pic of, uh, picture of that morning on Friday the 13th. He led a guy to, to Jesus to be saved. And I texted back and I said, well, I guess God runs the calendar a little bit different than we do. And uh, praise God he does. Well, that's what they're doing. This is, what, this, is, this is what the southern kingdom has come to. And we could fall into the same trap. And it's still with us today. It might take on a different name or no name at all, but it's here. Not only that, they were a poor witness. It says in verse 6, they returned back from following the Lord. These were the people who were supposed to draw people to the Lord, and they themselves are walking away from him. They were wandering off. And the Lord's response to this, I don't know if you picked this, the, 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 the intrigue of verse 7 where it says that the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. That's interesting. That's God's response. He has prepared a sacrifice. Why does it say that? Well, because one theme that is always true of sin in the Bible is that where there is sin, there is death. And God instituted the sacrifices... For the people to remind them that sin brings death and to provide a kind of a way out, an appeasement of God's wrath. Because either the sinner is going to die or somebody's going to die in place of the sinner. And that's why God instituted the sacrifices. Now God says, you don't care about me, you don't care about the sacrifices, I have a sacrifice. And it's not an animal, it's you. You will die because of your sin. That's what God is saying to him. And it's because he is holy. He is set apart from all that is false and profane and sinful. And it's as if God is saying to his people, listen, inside you are profane and you're sinful and your wickedness and my holiness and your sinfulness, they do not mix and they cannot dwell together. And that's where every single person in this room, my, my wickedness, my sinfulness, my paganism, it cannot mix, cannot dwell with the holiness of God. That's the problem. We'll come back to that. But God then, he, he condemns the leaders in verse 8 where he punishes the officials. It talks about these guys who are leaping over the threshold. And it says who array themselves in foreign attire. I mean, this is, I mean he's just saying, uh, he's saying these leaders are going to have a high degree of punishment because they blurred the line between what separated them as people of God. That's what it says, who array themselves in foreign attire. They're like, let's not look so much like I could say Christians, even though they were, you know, God's people. Let's not look like God's people. Let's try to look as much as we can like the other nations. And for us, listen, it's not about how you dress. There's no dress code for Christianity. But the same, this, again, different name, same idea. We can, we can do that. We can try to dress ourselves in the attire of the nations and say, let's try to look as much like the world as possible. They were jumping over the threshold. It's kind of this idea that they introduced antics into worship. 
In verse 11, he condemns their love of money. And in verse 12, he calls out their complacency. This is just so interesting in verse 12 where he says, I'm going to punish the men who are complacent. Literally, the idea of the word is stagnant wine. It's like pressing out the wine and just kind of just letting it sit out in the open. And so, he says, I'm going to punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, notice this, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. He won't do either one. It's like God doesn't matter. Listen, don't worry about God. Don't worry about God. Listen, he's not going to do, if you did the right thing, he's not going to do anything good to you. If you do the wrong thing, whatever the wrong thing is, he's not going to do anything bad. Just God literally doesn't matter. He just doesn't matter. Just leave him, leave him off to the side. He doesn't matter. That's what they were saying here. And so they enjoyed all their stuff and all their life and their lifestyle, but they were a complete, complete danger of this unraveling, and that's in verses 14 through 18, this complete unraveling of creation and the creative order. Why? We go back to why, why is God doing this? Verse 15, a day of wrath, a day of distress, a day of ruin, a day of darkness, a day of clouds, a day of trumpet blasts, a day of all the day, this day of terrible destruction, a complete unraveling of the creative disorder. Why is God doing this? The reason is simple. Why will God pour out his wrath on the world? Chapter 1, verse 17, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned. There's no no need for God to give any further explanation. And sin sin would just kind of be an annoying thing to have around if God was not holy. And so he calls them in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, to repent. And he says, gather together, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect. Before it gets here, get together and get it together. And come and repent and turn to the Lord. He says in verse 2, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. And then verse 3, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Repent. In order to escape God's coming wrath, we all must identify with the nation of Judah. Otherwise, there's no reason to escape. There's absolutely no reason to escape the city of destruction if there isn't imminent danger on the city of destruction or the world. Bail worship is gone, but finding your security in yourself or in your accomplishments or in your money is just the same. Things like lacking integrity, loving money, living as God doesn't exist, indulging in sin, these are all things that lead us to ruin. And what will save us? What's going to save us? That's what verse, verse 18, notice here it says, Neither silver nor gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. So it can't be your money. You're not going to buy your way out of this. It can't be your religion. You're not going to work your way out of this. How do you get out of this city? How do you, earn, how do you get out because you can't earn your way out? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 is the answer. It says that, listen, time is not on your side. Judgment is coming. Go straight to God. Go straight to God. Go straight to him. Flee to God or fall into ruin. Back to the Pilgrim's Progress, which I referenced at the beginning of the sermon. 
the man that John Bunyan wrote about had a lot of people telling him, hey, why are you leaving? Why do you want to leave? Don't worry about it. Because he read in the book, he read in the book that God's wrath was coming. And, and so he tells people that he's burdened and people are saying, listen, you don't have anything to worry about. Even his wife and his kids, his neighbors, they all just thought he was delusional. And some of you may be holding on to security in the things of the world. And you're just loving the world because you think this whole idea of God's judgment is just delusional. And you think that it's so far off or you've got so much time that there's, there's no imminent danger. That God will hold off. He's not going to do anything good, but he's not going to do anything bad. He doesn't do anything bad. He doesn't do anything wrong, that is. Nothing sinful. But he does bring judgment. Flee to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's a second thing as we move on, keep moving here, that we need to understand in order to escape the wrath to come. Number one, we need to understand God's character compared to what's within. And secondly, we need to understand God's will. Or you can put God's plan, either one, that's kind of what we're talking about. God's plan compared to what's around. And that's what happens in chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 3, verse 8 kind of picks up on what's the rest of the nations here. And God is just kind of saying, like, this, this, is, this is a real thing. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, if this is a real thing, and this day of wrath and distress and anguish and ruin and devastation and darkness and gloom and clouds and thick darkness and trumpet blast and battle cry and all these things, if this is really true, I'm looking around and I don't see a single nation li- living as if a total worldwide creation-ending judgment is coming. And you'd be right. Can't name for me one, one nation, save maybe the nation of Israel, who know these things, but still not living like it. Can't name one nation that's living as if a total worldwide creation-ending judgment is coming. And God is going to start going through this. And he's going to reveal his will and his plan. And the reason why I say you look around is because he kind of touches on all the nations that are north, south, and east of the people of Judah. And he starts with the Philistines in verse 4. And we're not going to take time to unpack a lot of this, but just kind of give some quick bullet points here. God calls the people to look around and learn God's will for all the nations. Uh, this, actually, this section is referred to as the poem of nations that Zephaniah gives us. And he starts with the Philistines. And what we learn from the Philistines is that, if you look in verse 5, it says, The word of the Lord is against you. What we learn here, the principle here is that God's word will never fail. We've already talked about that. Matthew 24, 25, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That means if God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. If he says, if he threatens something, it's a real threat. If God says this is what's coming up, then this is what's coming up. There's also a positive side to this in verse 7 from, the, from when he talks to the Philistines. He says, the seacoast shall become possession, notice this, of the remnant of the house of Judah. And so, he gives, so Zephaniah gives little glimmers of hope throughout this. That, that there is a positive side to God's judgment, that is deliverance for his people. And you will face God. You will face God. You will stand before him. And you will face him in one of two ways. You will stand before him as your judge 
condemned by him or you will stand before him as your deliverer. You will face him as a child of his grace or you will face him as a child of wrath. He moves on to Moab in verse 8. Again, we move quickly through these. And we learn here that God is a God of vengeance. Verse 9, as I live, declares the Lord, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. He's a God of vengeance. It's going to be divine overthrow. God will treat these nations like Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, the nations that kind of the Bible uses over and over again to talk about just complete destruction. You guys remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? But God is saying here he is God over all the nations and the pride, verse 10, of Moab. It's going to be wiped out. And then he moves on to the, the Ninevites, or really the Cushites, in verse 12. We kind of get this one thing. You also... And he says you also because the Cushites are like a super remote country, pretty much insignificant. You would say, why would God even call them out? It's because it doesn't matter where you're at, God, the judgment is coming. And then he moves into Assyria. We've already talked about Assyria over the last several weeks, this well-off, prosperous nation. But they're not going to have any safe place to hide. And then he comes back to Judah again at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. He talks about judgment, or mainly in chapter 3, and talks about Judah. And I want to land on here just a little bit, because I want you to notice what they're doing. Let's read in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions, it says. Kind of just trying to get their own. Verse 6, he says, the Lord says, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruin. I have laid waste to their streets so that no one walks in them. Verse 7, God says, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But at the end of verse 7, it says, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. And that word eager, the literal, literal translation is they rose up early. They were a rebellious people who turned from God's word. Their leaders were selfish, and it says they woke up early in the morning, zealous for anything other than God. I'm going to just stop right there. Because I'm, I'm not saying that this verse right here is about Bible reading or what we do in the mornings with our devotional time, but I think there's a direct application. Because the people of Israel were waking up in the morning. And remember, this is poetic language, so he's, he's describing the people in a poetic way. And he's like, it was as if the people, the first thing they do, they wake up early in the morning, and their thoughts go to everything other than God. And God is saying, it's, they, wake, they have no thought of me, they don't care about me. And this is why I say, this could be so much like us in the mornings. We could rise up earlier. We could be eager to get up. And it says they make all their deeds corrupt. And it's just the moment they get up, they're thinking about anything other than God. And that's the temptation we face every single day. We must wake up and get our thoughts on God. We got to wake up, open our Bibles, and find a verse to chew on the rest of the day. And make sure our minds are on God. Be eager. Be eager. Not to check the social medias, not to check emails, not to get to work and but eager to get our thoughts on God. What God is saying here is that God will judge the sinfulness of all the nations. That's the will and plan of God. 
There are 195 countries in the world, and they are all pretty much operating however they want. They legislate how they want. They govern how they want. And we even have politicians. You ever heard a politician say something like, man, look what this country is doing. We need to catch up or something like that. And we have other nations around us saying, man, look what America's doing. We should, we should be like them. We've got a bunch of sinful pagan nations looking at each other and trying to copy each other's sinful pagan ways. That's what the world is. And they're self-willed. They seem like they're self-willed and doing everything on their own, but God has an end in mind. There's not one nation in the world right now that isn't rejecting God. And there's not one nation in the world right now that isn't a city of destruction. And there's not one nation in the world right now that, is, that you can go to and be safe from the wrath of God. People can come to our country and we, we want to offer them safety from the terrors and the atrocities that happen so many other places, especially against women and children. But there is nowhere you can go to be safe from the coming wrath of God. So we look around and we say, man, there's nowhere to run. It's as if God was telling Judah, don't think you can just run away to Egypt and be safe. There's nowhere to run. But there's someone to run to. And that's the great story of the Bible. Because when we identify our sins and we forfeit our securities, we turn to God through Jesus. We seek God and we run to God through Jesus Christ. That's our refuge. Jesus, by the one, if you're wondering, man, God is really kind of, man, he's just really landed on. You should know, Jesus is the one that will ultimately judge the world. Acts 17.31, maybe you're familiar with the verse, where it says, God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who is this man? Well, it's the man, and he's given us full assurance because he raised this man from the dead. Did you know that one of the reasons Jesus was raised from the dead was to come and judge sinners in the judgment and wrath of God. But did you also know that one of the reasons Jesus was raised from the dead, it says he was raised in Romans for our justification, that not only was he raised to come back as the ruler that will judge this world, but he was raised so that anybody who calls in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved from him. And that's what leads us to the final one here. In order to escape, we must see God's character compared to what's within. We must see God's will or God's plan compared to what's around. And then thirdly, as we close out the book in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, we must understand God's love compared to what's behind us. Or maybe what's even happening right now. Because the day of the Lord isn't just a day of judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of deliverance. For his people. And in verse 10, God starts with the nations again. Verse 9 and 10. For at that time, verse 9, we read this earlier. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush. Hey, the Cushites are back. Once under judgment, now they're being rescued. 
He says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, he says in verse 11, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to go somewhere? In the world with so much shaming and accusing, wouldn't it be great to go somewhere where there's a promise that you will never be shamed for any sin you've ever done? God says that's me. On that day, there will be no shame for you. No shame for, your, for you addicts who trust in Jesus. No shame for, for, for you husbands, you wives, you parents who are struggling, who trust in Jesus. No shame. He says, I'll remove from your midst. I'm going to get rid of the proud ones. And I'm going to get rid of those haughty ones in my holy mountain. But I will leave you in the midst of the people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice. They'll speak no lies. They shall be found in their midst, no deceitful tongue. They shall graze and lie down, and none, nothing's going to make them afraid. Verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Man, after all that we just went through, wouldn't it be nice for you to say, God has taken away any judgment he has against me. He's offering that. It's a day of deliverance. And the nations are going to have unity and purity of speech. Could you imagine? Rulers of the nation having purity of speech? You must say, there's got to be a miracle to happen. It does. A miracle does have to happen. Unity. You know, you go back to Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel where everybody was unified, had one language. God's saying, we're going back to that. We're going back to everybody's unified. There's pure speech. There's a purity of heart. This is God's plan, and this is the hope we have to look forward to. And God's saying to the people, here's what I'll do for you. And this is what God can do for you this morning. You can be one of God's restored people. Because this isn't just for, yes, these promises are for Israel, and they will be literally fulfilled, but these aren't just for physical descendants of Abraham. Otherwise, we don't need the New Testament. We just end at the Old Testament. These promises, yes, will be literally fulfilled for the people, the Jewish people, but God is saying, I've opened up the program wider so that this isn't just for physical descendants of the Jewish people. He offers to remove the shame you have because of rebellion, and he promises to give you a clear conscience. And right now, God is saving people from all nations Right now, like John chapter 10, God is calling people into a sheepfold that weren't part of the Jewish sheepfold. And his sheep will graze and they'll lie down and nothing's going to make them afraid. And God will be in their midst. Now you should be able to say, like, wait a minute. You said just at the beginning, point one, you said there's no way our wickedness can dwell with the holy God. And you'd be right. You know, I'd be thinking, okay, well, if no wickedness can dwell with God, does God have like a cool table, like at the lunchroom, where there's like a certain group of people that are only allowed in? What happened is the people being referred to here have had the judgment of God removed from them. But said he's, God's taken away the judgment. Well, what happened? What did the people do? What did they do to get their judgment removed? Because whatever they did, I don't know about you, but if this stuff is true, I want to do the same thing. I want that judgment removed. How is that possible? 
Well, they had to go to God. And what they were looking forward to is what we look back to. That God poured out his wrath and judgment on Jesus Christ. The one who knew no sin. And he died on the cross. He rose again from the dead to show that his sacrifice was sufficient to save any sinner who believes in him. So there's no need to fear. There's no need to be discouraged. As a matter of fact, look at the end of this chapter as we close out here. Uh, He says, he says, I will gather those of you, uh, this is verse 18, or verse 17. He says, the Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. A God who rejoices over you instead of pours fire on you. He says, I'll rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God in heaven singing loud songs of exaltation over you. What? He says, at that time, I'll bring you in, verse 20. Verse 19 says, he'll save the lame. He'll gather the outcast. He's going to change the shame into praise. He's going to bring them all in. This is what God can do for you. There's no need to fear, no need to be discouraged. The helpless and banished are brought in. God's salvation overcomes all obstacles, all limitations. And he says, this is what calls for worship. Verse 14, chapter 1, verse 7, when God says he was going to you know, bring in the judgment, he said, be silent. And now he says, listen, if you've experienced my salvation, sing out loud. God says he loves his people, and we'll, we'll close with this thought, but we can't, we can't miss this, where he says, I'm going to rejoice over you with gladness. I will quiet you with my love. A love that rejoices over sinful people, messed up people. You won't find a father on earth who has that depth of love. At least not perfectly. The word love in verse 17 isn't the normal word of love that's, u- that's normally used of God to talk about his unending, unfailing love. Of course that's true of God. But the love that's being talked about here is that of a delighting love. It's the same love from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3, where it says this. It's the same, you remember this story? It says, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. That's the word. Same word in the same meaning, which means this. God loves his children as much as he loves Jesus, his son. God loves his children as much as he loves Jesus, his son. And you've got to believe that because it's true. God is the shepherd that Jesus talks about who finds the lost sheep, the widow who found the lost coin, the father who runs out after the prodigal son. That's who God is and that's what he thinks of you. And your earthly father may not be this. Maybe the exact opposite. Whatever it is, you have a father in heaven who is like this. And who has committed himself fully, eternally to be this for you forever, regardless of how you mess up. Amen. We got to compare God's love to whatever's behind us even if that behind you was yesterday or even this morning. Well, that man in the city of destruction meets another man by the name of Evangelist. And Evangelist admonishes him, flee the wrath to come. But this man didn't know where to flee. And so Evangelist points him just outside 
the city, there's, there's a path, and it led to a little wicked gate. And so the man runs out, and people are trying to call him back, and he puts his hands over his ears, and he, he runs out yelling, life, life, eternal life. And he runs out of the city, and he gets to the gate, and he opens up the gate, and just through the gate, just up a hill a little ways, there was a cross. And he walked up that hill, and he got to the cross, and the burden that was strapped to his back, a mystery to him, but just fell off. And not only did it fell off, it said it fell off and rolled down the hill into a tomb where it was sealed forever. It said angels came and, and he, the rags that he was, he was wearing, they were stripped off. They gave him a coat that belonged to the king of the celestial city himself. And Christian, that's the man's name now. He said, when I come to the city, that celestial city, that heavenly city, when I come to this city, the Lord will know me for good since I have his coat on my back. A coat that he gave me freely the day that he stripped me of my rags, the day my burden fell off my shoulders. Listen, when you die, you will stand before God. Will he know you? Will you be wearing his coat of perfect righteousness, which he offers to you through faith in Jesus? Flee to Christ. The burden will fall off your back. You'll be safe in his love, and you'll soon be home in his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, for those in here who have yet to flee the city of destruction, it's heavy stuff, Lord, to realize we have to talk about sin and your wrath and your judgment. But man, Lord, we got to. We need that truth because we need to know what we're running from. And we need to know what we're running to, who we're running to. So thank you for providing your son, Jesus, who willingly went to the cross to absorb every last drop of your wrath for all those who ever believe in Jesus. And Lord, for those Christians who maybe are just doubting your love, can't see your love, Lord, may they be reminded today that you are delighting in them as much as you delight in your son Jesus. But it's not because of us, but it is because of Jesus that we have hope with you. Pray these in Jesus' name.